0: Good morning, church. Good to see you here this morning. If you have your Bibles, uh, I encourage you to get them on out. Turn to John chapter 4. John 4. I say this often, and I'll inevitably say it often again. There's, there is something um, just special about having uh, your own Bible here. We put it up on the screen, and that's great. And uh, and, and you're obviously more than welcome to follow along there, but um, it's just something about the tangible word of God being in your hand, that and that, that kind it of brings it real to us. So I, I do encourage you to to bring a Bible to church. And if you've ever forgot, we have Bibles right outside, uh, right outside the door to the to the left as we look out there, but uh, that you can you can borrow, or or we have them so that if you don't have a Bible, you can uh, grab one and, and take it with you and make it yours. So. Uh, John chapter 4, let me pray and we'll jump into it. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this day, uh, for uh, the beautiful uh, skies outside that just remind us of uh, of your beauty and your goodness. Lord, we, uh, we thank you that though we were at one point um, separated and alienated and, and, and other, Lord, that you loved us and cared for us, you sent your son to die for us, and you reached out and grabbed us and, and are, are continuously pulling us into your arms. We just thank you for your, your love and your grace towards us, Lord. As we turn to your word, we ask that you would you would open it up to us, allow our hearts and our minds to be ready and willing to hear what it would teach us. And it's in Jesus' name, Lord. Uh, John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing uh, more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. And so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given his, uh, to his son Joseph. <clears throat> Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, <clears throat> was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Uh, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, uh, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, I know uh, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. And the water that that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, and he? Jesus, just then, excuse me, just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. This be the Christ. And they went out to the ta- they went out of the town and were coming to him. And meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, "Rabbi, eat." But he said to them, "I have food to eat that you do not know about." So the disciples said to one another, "Has has anyone brought him something to eat?" And Jesus said to, said to them, "My my food is to do the will of him who sent me, to accomplish his work." Do Do you not say there is yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields. The see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And we're actually going to stop there. We're not going to look at that next next couple of verses. Not that what we read was not enough. This story is uh, one continuous story. When we're in the New Testament, we get we get much more used to reading maybe paragraphs that are kind of containing the whole the whole story that we need. This is very this story is very reminiscent of an Old Testament story that takes you know three tap chapters to tell. But in order to understand the whole story, you got to read all three chapters. Anyway, that's not really that important. But it is a longer story, but it is one story. And within this story. There are lots and lots and lots of rabbit trails that we could go down and take a month to, to preach. Um, I'm not going to do that today. Just simply because I want to try to, to first get the main point. What I think is, is evidently the main point of this particular story. Next week... Uh, We actually start our Easter series. We're we're getting close. It'll be the the Lent. Lent starts on Wednesday. We don't really follow the liturgical calendar, but we've been, the last couple years, we've been taking the same amount of time and kind of preparing our hearts for Easter. It's been good, and so that's what we're going to do again. So it's going to be about three months, actually, before we come back to John, because we'll stay in Easter for a little bit for seven weeks after Easter Sunday. But we will come back, and we'll look at some of those other things And I say that only because at some point, somebody in this room is going to go, Ryan, you missed a really big point. I know I did. That's the point. So let's jump into what I think the main point is. As we study the Bible, oftentimes, last thing and then we'll jump into it. As we study the Bible, oftentimes, there are many things that the Bible kind of intuitively or or as a sub-teaching teaches us but there's always a main thing. So as you read the Bible, there's a main thing, and then there are other things that are truths that we see in that story but aren't necessarily the main thing. Okay, enough of that wasting time. This might be a relatively familiar story, but I think as we go through it, we'll, we'll benefit from the reminders of what is going on. When we jump back to what we just passed through in chapter 3 with the story of Nicodemus, we might find that the stories have a very similar arc, right? Not that, the, not that they're necessarily teaching exactly the same thing, or that, or that everything is exactly, it's not a re- repetition of the story, but the story seems very similar in that we have Nicodemus coming to Jesus, or in this case, Jesus coming to the woman at the well, a conversation is struck up which seems relatively normal and then Jesus kind of initiates off and left the old new conversation with Nicodemus Nicodemus comes to Jesus says he says rabbi we know that you're a teacher come from god Jesus is like you must be born again we're all like but with the Samaritan woman Jesus Jesus asks for a drink and then the Samaritan woman is like i can't believe you a jew would ask me a Samaritan woman for a drink and then Jesus is like why aren't you asking me for a drink? And you're, what? Why is this so strange? My suggestion with Nicodemus, my same suggestion this week with the Samaritan woman, is that what Jesus is actually doing is he's trying to get to the heart of the matter. He's trying to get to the heart of the Samaritan woman or Nicodemus in the previous case, where where it's it's that one particular thing that is keeping Nicodemus and the, and the woman at the well from going from just a knowledge of who Jesus is to actually having a, a heart relationship with Jesus. At the end of chapter 2, we read that Jesus is uh, performing miracles in Jerusalem, and many people believed, and yet Jesus doesn't entrust himself to them because he knows what's in their heart. And again, my suggestion, it, what that passage means is that, is that just having a knowledge of some aspect of who Jesus is isn't, isn't actually what we're after. We're after knowing the Christ, the one who comes to save. And Nicodemus, he comes to Jesus. He's like, he's like, look, we believe you're a teacher. You're a good moral teacher. And we all believe this, right? We believe that Jesus is a good moral teacher. But there are many people who believe that, a good, that Jesus is just a moral teacher, a good guy. We should maybe listen to what he says but don't know him as the savior of their life. And so Jesus cuts right to the heart. He says, look, it's not about just being a good moral teacher. Though I am, it's about me coming to save the lost. I think the same thing happens here. The stories have this same kind of development. I think the same thing happens here, but over a different matter. With Nicodemus, it's about the law. It's about getting things right. He's a Pharisee. And he, he wants to make sure the law is right. And Jesus is coming. He's going to tell us the right way to follow the law, and then we'll be good. If I just don't sin anymore, we'll be good. And he's like, no, you're already a sinner. With the Samaritan woman, it's a little bit different. With the Samaritan woman, I think, I think the main thing is, is her holdup, is, is the method by which she thinks worship must be done. Which I think is a very similar conversation to what we've had in the church for thirty or forty years with worship wars. It's a terrible way to describe it, but maybe relatively accurate. So context. Jesus, he's going from he's going from a uh, uh, Jerusalem in, in Judea in Judah, in Judea, excuse me, which is in the south of, of the whole nation of Israel, what we maybe would know today as Israel. So it's in the south, and he's gotta go up north to to the region of galilee which is where he's from which is where nazareth is which is where most of his ministry happens is up in galilee and he's got to get there so he's got to travel he's got to walk in order to get from judah to galilee he's got to go through samaria now samaria to to boil it down and not to take too much time because it's a rabbit trail that i i I, we could go down and and i like history and that's one of the reasons why we would go down it basically it's just good old-fashioned racism the tension between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people is just is just racism. Now it's not the same kind of racism that we immediately think of in in black and white or black and, or white and brown or whatever. You know we can see the color differences. Obviously there's a difference between us, which is garbage. And this the same idea. The the people of Samaria are are Israelites from the Northern Kingdom who who either stayed and and married non-Israelite people, or were sent away, married non-Israelite people, and then came back and settled back in the region. In the end, the Jewish people think that the Samaritans are somehow lesser because they marry non-Israelite, non-Jewish people. And the reason why they think this is a false understanding of what God is saying to them when he tells them, do not marry non-Israelite. Do not marry outside of the Israelite community. The reason why God says this is not because other races or ethnicities are somehow lesser, but because when you are a God, a singular God, or you worship a singular God, and you marry somebody who all their life has been taught that it's not just one God, but it's many gods, it's really easy for that multiple God system, that polytheistic mindset, to corrupt and challenge a monotheistic mindset, and that's exactly what happens over the course of Israel's history. They marry outside of outside of their religion, and it brings them down. Inevitably, brings them down. And what the Israelites eventually start to do is they're like, "No, you're marrying all these other people." But God says, "If you become an Israelite, it's different." Ruth leaves her home, her father, her mother, and every oh, her past. And and dedicates herself to the Lord. She tells Naomi, your God is now my God. And then Ruth becomes one of the ancestors of King David and subsequently King and subsequently Jesus. So it's a misunderstanding, but that's what's happening. It's just good old-fashioned racism. Maybe good is not the right word. So Jesus, he, he finds himself walking through Samaria. And actually this hatred runs so deep that some people wouldn't actually travel through Samaria. They'd go around. They'd like double their journey time to go around. Jesus, he goes right to the middle. They get to a place. Here's this well, which is water. And the disciples go to buy food because they're hungry and they've been walking for a long time. They don't have cars and it's, you know, it's a strenuous journey. So Jesus, he sits down at the well. Here comes this Samaritan woman. She comes up to Jesus. Jesus says, give me a drink. Now, it is unusual for Jesus to address a woman but it's not that unusual. The Israelites are, are not a culture that believed that women were possession. Right? Not the same as the rest of the world around them. But it is still sort of unusual for a teacher, a rabbi, to, to ask a woman. What's shocking is that Jesus addresses the Samaritan. And she says as much when she says, how, how can you ask me, a woman of Samaria, for a drink? Now Jesus' response here is the cutting To the point it's the cutting to the problem, the tension that is going to arise for this Samaritan woman to not just think of Jesus as another moral teacher like Nicodemus or as one who might come and and challenge the status quo a little bit. But it's going to come and be something fundamentally different to these people, to the Samaritans. And so Jesus says, if you would know who I am, you'd ask me for living Now, like Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman thinks only of the practical, physical realities of the statement that was just made. How can I be born again? You don't have anything to draw water, she says. You don't have anything to draw water, so how is it you're going to give me water? And Jesus is not talking about physical water. He's talking about spiritual water. He's talking about spiritual water. Water that is going to do something. Water that is going to change something. Water... It is what we experience when Christ becomes our Savior. This is the getting the horse and cart in the right order. This is the change that is going to happen to us. This is what happens when when ministry is about Christ, not about my own ego. This is what happens to me whenever I have sin in my past life and Christ comes in and cleans my life up. This is the ramifications of living water. So Jesus says, I'm gonna give you living water. And she's like, I want some of this. I don't want to be thirsty again. I hate coming to this well and drawing water. It's a lot of work. It's not quite there yet. And so Jesus seemingly changes again. He, he turns it just again. He says, Look, go get your husband. Verse 16. Go get your go, tell, go call your husband and come here. He says, and the woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus says, You're right. You've had five husbands, and the guy you're with is not your husband. Now, I'm going to tread lightly. I'm sure many of you have heard this sermon preached and Jesus is addressing a sin issue. I don't necessarily think that's what's happening here. Now, it could be. could be that Jesus is addressing sin. But there's two problems with that. Number one, Jesus is not just talking. She's not a prostitute. We can say this confidently: She's not a prostitute because she's been married by time. And then there's this sixth guy who differentiates himself from the, the five husbands. So if Jesus was just talking about you, you've been with somebody physically and that has changed your status for them, then he would have just said, yeah, you've had six husbands, not five in now a new situation. So she's had five husbands. The other problem is she has no right legally as a woman to divorce her husband. So it's the husbands who are divorcing her or dying. And the biggest, and I think the most important reason why that's not what our focus should be, is that it's not even remotely what Jesus focuses. He brings this up, and the only thing that this, this conversation does is it tells the Samaritan woman that Jesus is something different. Right? Her attitude towards this man changes drastically when Jesus says this. If you're right. It's very much like when Jesus tells uh, Philip, he was sitting under the tree. Philip or Nathaniel? Now I'm blanking on which one it is. One of those two guys. He was sitting under the fig tree. He's like, oh, you know everything. She says, oh, you know everything. Now, I'm gonna, I'm not, I'm not saying that it can't possibly be sin. It's not what I'm talking about. And yes, we need to recognize that sin is often in the way. But what Jesus then does with this information is he immediately shifts to a new thought. Or maybe rather, she immediately shifts to a new thought. This sets Jesus in a new light, and she now asks, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain, and you say you should worship in Jerusalem. What this is, when north and south splits, you've got King David, or King Saul, excuse me, King David, King Solomon. After King Solomon, Israel splits into two nations under Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Uh, and and what happens is that the the south, Judah, where Jerusalem is, they said we're supposed to worship God at Jerusalem. The people in the north, they said, no, we're going to worship on the mountain where where uh, where Jacob built his his or not Jacob built where, where Jacob sees the ladder going up and down, Mount uh, uh, Gerizim. Mount Moriah for the Jewit, or the Israelite people. And so this is the question she asks. She goes, okay, you're a prophet. You've showed me something about myself. You're a, so you're a prophet. Let me ask you a question. Where is the worship best? And once again, Jesus doesn't answer that question. He says, no, you're missing the point. You're missing the point in the whole conversation. The point is not which mountain is the best mountain to worship on. It's the who of who we're worshiping. In fact, he says, actually, there will come a time, there's going to come a time when worship on a mountain is no longer even the question. Because worship will change from, from location to, to method to, to type to whatever, and it'll be about what happens in our hearts. It'll be about the spirit that dwells in us, in the spirit of our desire or our affection towards God. This is why on a Sunday morning we can have a song where the band is playing at full at full tilt and we're singing loud and we're worshiping the Lord, and then the next song we're completely quiet and we're and we're and we're inward and it's the same worship because it's not about a method. Or, or maybe more practically having swapped the sides of the building. It's it's not about having the drum set and the piano over there and there, but it's about it, it's not about that. It's about the heart of the worship. It's about the Spirit of God in the worship. Okay, okay. I don't think that Jesus is saying that that is an unimportant thing to think about or to talk about or to to contemplate. i rather think he's saying, get it in the right place. I don't think Jesus was telling Nicodemus that it's not about uh, good moral teaching. He's rather saying, that's not my primary function. I am first and always the one to save sinners. And when sinners are saved, change will happen. Laws will, or or, or, uh, sin will be removed from my life. My actions and and my visible appearance on on how good or moral I am will fundamentally change as Christ saves me. But we have to get it in the right order. It's not about what type of music you, you worship. It's not about what mountain you're on. It's about the God we serve. And we serve Him and we worship Him in spirit, which removes the location. Then the woman says, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us. And so she basically is like, I don't know if I like that answer. And Jesus says, guess what? I'm the Christ. I think this is the key to the whole passage. I think this picks up everything that we've been talking about for the first three chapters of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I think this is the same thing that happens when, when Jesus shows himself to be something Different than everybody else that's come before. I think this is I think this is the point when, when Jesus tells the Samaritan woman, I am the Christ, I am the one who's come, not to condemn the world, but but to save the world. I think it's at this point that Jesus sets the picture properly. But the story diverges again. Again, to know the disciples. Disciples come; they come back. So they were in the city; they were getting food. Apparently, they found some food. Now they're coming back. She runs off to go tell people about what she's experienced. She tells the people in the city, "Look, this guy told me all about myself, and now, now, could he be the Christ? Could he be the Christ?" Then we have this weird exchange between the disciples of Jesus and and. And Jesus himself, and, and, and like I've said throughout our study on in, in John here, the disciples are way more often than not, most of the time when we encounter the disciples in John's gospel especially, they are teaching us what we are supposed to see. How they act, how they respond, what they say is often what we're supposed to understand from the story. So I think there are kind of two audiences. There's audience one, the Samaritan woman, who is told by Jesus, look, get it right. It's me who you worship in spirit, not on a mountain. But the disciples have a different experience. They see this Samaritan woman, and they immediately do what all of us do. Consciously or subconsciously. They put her in a category. Good old-fashioned racism sex sister, sexist, or fill in the blank on whatever I, whatever. I'm not those things. No, I'm not. Now, they don't spend a lot of time there, but certainly I can't believe that he's talking to that Samaritan woman. It, 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 but they're actually afraid to continue. And they ask Jesus, they say, here, here, we got some food, eat it. And Jesus is like, no, you're missing, misunderstanding what's happening. I was just ministering. Jesus I was just ministering to this Samaritan woman my food the food that you don't know about again not talking about physical representation but talking about a spiritual reality anybody who's ever done any kind of ministry or evangelism knows that you still at some point get hungry it's not what Jesus is actually saying he's trying to emphasize the fact that he just ministered to this woman who nobody else thought deserved ministry to Let me ask you a question, I guess. And it's not, I don't want you to respond, right? I want you to be honest with yourself. Because, yeah. Close your eyes or pretend like you're closing your eyes. And I want you to picture for a minute a group of people that you're not part of. Maybe some of you are thinking to yourselves, so well, if I'm not a part of that group, how would I know that? Well, by, I guess by definition, knowing that you're not part of the group, you know that the group exists. So think of that group that you're not a part of. And I'm going to imagine that in this room, it's different for every single person, or almost every single person. Maybe some spouses in here share the same group that they don't feel a part of. Let me ask you again, be honest with yourself. If... In the course of your life and in the course of the time that you've had to interact with this particular group of people or the people within this group. If you've ministered to them. Now ministry to to somebody obviously first means to tell them about Jesus. But it also can mean feeding and clothing and giving drink to the thirsty. Now, some of you are thinking about this group and the group and the isolation that you feel with this group or a person is because of them. And you've tried to make inroads and you've tried to serve them and you've tried to. And they're the ones blocking the conversation. And that's. It's a different conversation. altogether. But I would imagine that there's if we're honest again. For most or all of us, there's somebody that we see or think of, and for some reason or another, they're other to us. And whether it's conscious or subconscious, part of the fall is that we want to break relationship. That's part of it, it's part of what it means to be a sinner. And so inevitably, whether it's big or little, somewhere down the road, there's somebody that we're like, but, but, I don't know if they're worthy of it. And so here's my challenge, I guess. Here's my challenge. Start to see them with the same eyes that Jesus has. See them in the eyes of of Christ. Because you'll notice as we've gone through this story that Jesus doesn't hesitate for even one moment. He immediately asks this woman for a drink. He immediately goes right to the heart of matter and tells her about who he really is and how Worship is going to change, and that thing that's maybe holding her back. One last, maybe, point that we can make about this, because it's really easy to say it. Trust me, it's really easy to say it. It's really hard to put it into practice. But remember this. that Each and every one of us one point, Colossians, I believe, tells us, we're at one point alienated and hostile to God. And we're the woman at the well. Christ has sat down with us, beside us, and challenged us and went right to the heart of the matter and invited us to know and to love him. So how could we be anything different to anybody else? Right. Holy Father, we are thankful and grateful for the love that you have for us. For the love that you have for all. Lord, whether it's a big aspect or a little aspect of how we think of other people, Lord, I ask that you would give us your your eyes. That as we sit down, even if we have great needs and desperately needing a drink of water from the long weary journey, that we would set all those things aside to proclaim truth. Whatever the result. We don't know. We always get to know. Would that be okay for us? Lord, we thank you again that when we were distant, we were separate, and we were other, you didn't leave us, you didn't abandon us, but you came to us. You sent Jesus to die and rescue me. is precious and holy and wonderful.